They must be destroyed on sight. Welcome to another episode of They Must Be Destroyed on Sight, a uh, movie podcast. I'm Lee Russell, and I'm joined by my co-host, as always, Daniel Harper. How's it going, Dan? Doing just great. Thanks for having me once again, Lee. Yeah. If my cat will be quiet, then I'm sure we'll be able to make it through this. That's all right. Um, we're going to be doing a sort of a uh, little bit more off the, uh, off the rails sort of movie uh, this time around. Uh, we're going to be doing a... Uh, sort of a low-budget Canadian uh, sci-fi slash horror slash surreal art house type movie um, from 2010 called Beyond the Black Rainbow. Uh, so you're saying this is not just kind of standard cinema fare in Canada? Yeah, I thought well, this might be kind of a, like, just kind of standard thing you'd see in a Halifax, like, drive-in or something. <laughs> no, well, you might you might see stuff like this in like the Toronto Film Festival all the time, uh, something similar anyway. Um, but uh, it, it's definitely much more of like a, I guess like a uh, student art project film almost, but with uh, a million dollar budget. Huh. Right. Um, but this is uh, like I said, Beyond the Black Rainbow, 2010, directed and written by Panos Cosm Cosmatos. I'm probably butchering that name. Uh, his father was actually a slightly well-known director, George P. Cosmatos. Uh, he did uh, Rambo First Blood Part Two. He did Leviathan. And he actually did Tombstone. Although there's um, some dispute whether he was more like a uh, just a figurehead director, uh, especially with the Rambo and the Tombstone movies, because they say maybe um, Kurt Russell ghost-directed Tombstone and Sylvester Stallone ghost-directed uh, Rambo and just basically told him to point the camera where, where they wanted it, right? So, but, but either way, apparently the money from Tombstone, or the leftover money, helped fund this film. So that's an interesting little trivia bit there. Um, the movie stars uh, Michael Rogers as Barry Nile, uh, Eva Bourne as Elena, Scott Highlands as Dr. Mercurio Arborea. Uh, I'll let that name uh, settle in your brain for a minute, see if you can make any sense out of that. Uh, <laughs> and and uh, Rondal uh, Reynoldson as Margo. And, uh, there are a couple other cast members, but it's a very small cast, very um, cast, very low budget sort of film. Um, it is set in 1983. Uh, probably not the 1983 either of us would be familiar with, but it's sort of a 1983 that might, might be set in some world, I think maybe like John Carpenter or somebody like that might have envisioned. Um, it's, it's essentially uh, this, doc, this Dr. Mercurio Aborea character was in the 1960s, this sort of uh, mad scientist version of uh, Timothy Leary, essentially. Um he, he was he was sort of running a cult, uh, but at the same time, uh, sort of going for transcendence. Uh, he he set up this institute to try to uh, get people to transcend their existence through the use of drugs and technology, 
um, very, uh, very sort of hippie-ish meets uh, Dr. Frankenstein kind of ideas. Um, and, and essentially, um, it shifts from the 1960s to, like I said, 1983, where his uh, protege, uh, Barry Nile, Dr. Barry Nile, has essentially taken over um, operation of the facility, which is sort of like uh, it's sort of like one of those habitual biodome sort of things. It's obviously, very isolated from um, the rest of uh, society. It's 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 its own environment encased inside of this dome, um, and basically uh, we open up in Barry Nile is basically uh, experimenting on a test subject, uh, Elena, uh, and he's uh, essentially we we sort of follow his routine as the film opens, um, where he's interviewing her, marking things off on his charts, uh, testing her. And um, anything you want to say so far about this, uh, Daniel? Yeah, I mean, um, I, I think that for the uh, listeners who uh, are maybe haven't seen the film yet, um, which I think would be the majority of them, yeah, um, uh, you know, it's worth noting that you've made this film so much so much more uh, conventional than maybe it is. Mm. Um, even as as strange as you know that kind of uh, description sounds. Um, this is a largely plotless film in a lot of ways, you know, um, lots of yep. long, unbroken takes. It's kind of um, uh, almost a Kubrickian wet dream in terms of uh, lots of long takes, lots of very sterile uh, interiors. Um, and uh, I think it's worth noting that, you know, this is not a, uh, you know, deliberately paced is putting it mildly, um, especially <laughs> yeah. for the first, uh, you know, half or so of this movie. You know, there, there's not a, a lot that really quote-unquote, happens. It's it's yeah. about kind of setting the mood. Um, it's also worth noting that uh, I kind of interpreted this... Uh, I mean, Timothy Leary is a good, a good uh, reference point in terms of the drug references, but, you know, in the, uh, you know, kind of the 70s, uh, you know, kind of mid-70s, late 70s, early 80s, you saw a lot of these kinds of uh, new-agey um, mm -hmm. kind of... Uh, you know, cults to, to not to, you know, not to use a loaded word, but, you know, lots and lots of these kinds of uh, fringe groups uh, yeah. kind of setting up these kind of uh, pseudo-utopian sorts of things. Um, I kind of see this as, as sort of uh, the tail end of this uh, idea. Like, like what's happening here is you're seeing, like, in the late 60s, they had this kind of small but kind of thriving community of a couple hundred people, and now it's like four people. You know, yeah, it, um, it's definitely like in its decline at this point. And I think that does maybe um, kind of show you uh, that justification might tell you kind of what's actually going on uh, later in the film. Yeah. Um, anyway, not to give anything away and not to speak out of turn. But uh, yeah. uh, I do think it's worth noting that um, Timothy Leary is definitely one touchstone, but you kind of like all the wet fever dreams of like Omni magazine, you know? Yeah. Um, it's, Frank Herbert kind of, you know, like those kind of characters. Yeah. It's, it's very much, um, one of those new age baby boomer sort of, um, utopian society, uh, slash cult slash things that saw little, little, uh, groups of them doing this sort of stuff. Nothing to this degree, of course, but, um, but well, yeah, this is the one that actually had the magical powers that they all claimed they had. Yeah. Um, effectively. Yeah. Cause, uh, basically what's going on here is, um, 
uh, Elena was born in this facility, and she's been essentially raised behind a glass cage for her entire life. And she, and it's, it's, you know, it's more than hinted at that she has um, sort of telekinetic powers uh, right from the get-go. And uh, Barry Nile is obviously um, testing these powers for some reason that uh, it remains unknown, mostly unknown, even by the end of the film to some degree. Um, but uh, he's sort of using her as a lab rat. Uh, he's also, he seems to be obsessed with uh, controlling her. And uh, he does so with this, uh, another unexplained thing, but this sort of sci-fi, unexplained sci-fi device, which is this big glowing pyramid that he can control um with a with a little knob and he can he can turn it down and it'll allow Elena to use her powers uh more acutely uh he turns it up it pretty much blacks out her powers altogether uh and the and the basically the first half of the film follows him sort of uh testing her uh at at one point he uh puts a uh, hides a photograph of her mother in the uh, in in her room to try to uh, get some sort of uh, reaction out of her. Um, so I, I thought I thought it was very interesting. Like it's very it's so deliberately paced. Like you said that uh, for the longest time you have no idea what's going on. There's like no action at all in the film for the most part. But um, yeah, and only I mean again as you noticed only a, you know basically four people in the entire movie you know yeah. um, until the very end and then you get like a couple of extra um so so it really is you know you're just you, you know it, it's very um uh, abstract in the in the way that it moves in the, in that first you know half or so where um it, it really is it can kind of go anywhere mm-hmm. um and i think uh again not to kind of jump ahead i think if there's a disappointment i have with the film is that it uh, does kind of end up going to a fairly conventional place, um, you know, yeah. for, for such a interesting and, and kind of open-ended beginning. Um, and then it just kind of becomes, uh, you know, what it becomes. But Yeah. But uh, so you get these themes of sort of science mixed with spirituality. Um, you get this flashback that uh, really shows what happened to uh, Barry Nile, why he's like on, on, on the outset, he looks like a fairly... Um, handsome controlled put together guy but as you watch him uh you you, you definitely notice there's something weird about him um there, there's something definitely off about him uh you get you get to see back where uh dr aboria was conducting the first experiments and barry you discovered that barry nile was the first uh was actually the first test subject in in the experiments um you see this flashback done in this uh highly contrasted black and white uh, 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 flashback, and it shows them putting him in uh, some sort of pool of unexplained black liquid, and it's hinted that he did transcend to maybe some other dimension of some sort, Um, and he comes back uh, not right at all. He actually kills Dr. Aboria's wife, who was just recently pregnant, and then we learned that Elena herself was essentially the next test subject to be put into the uh, into the pool, and um, it it seems like the pool had a much more profound uh, effect as far as um, 
or a more desirable effect at least on Elena than it did uh, Barry Nile as he's uh, essentially he doesn't seem like he has any sort of uh, powers at all or anything like that. It seems like he just came back crazy from from the pool. So, well, um, that that sort of makes sense in the. Uh... I bought that. I bought that completely, just because you know you could say like the developing mind, you know, is affected in, um, you know, is more susceptible to the changes that the liquid goo is going. Mm-hmm. You know, is you know, if you want to kind of scientificize it, you know, to yeah. coin a, to coin a word, you know, um, I kind of buy that. Um, there's kind of the, these uh, long tropes in science fiction where you kind of see the, um, you know, the adult being exposed to uh the scientist being exposed to some new thing uh is able to gaze upon it kind of realize a fraction of its power and then like scurries away from it yeah um and is driven mad by it versus uh you know a child or an animal or a baby or you know some other intelligence being able to accept it more fully so um that's kind of i thought the trope that they were trying to go for there um yeah i agree um, I, I thought, um, and essentially the plot after that, it, it shifts because, uh, Barry Nile, he becomes more and more unhinged, especially cause he's not really getting the, he's getting some results, but he's not really getting the, the results he wants from Elena. Um, and eventually it, it sort of follows Elena's, uh, attempt to escape. Um, at one point she's even let loose by, uh, Nile just to see what she does, um, but but it's it's essentially it becomes about Elena's escape from her environment and and Niles, uh, I guess, his self destruction really like his his uh, he he really just sort of he just finally cracks. He it seems like he's been on the edge as the movie begins, and then he just totally steps over it by the end of the film. Um, but um, and I th- I think maybe we should uh, go into uh, a bit of the ending because um, uh, I can see, I can see why you said you were disappointed by it. And, uh, and I can definitely understand that because it, it does sort of dissolve into uh, almost like a 1980 slasher movie to some degree. Well, it's not even that element. It's the, you know, it kind of, you start off with this, these kind of big ideas about, you know, this, this uh, French group and psychic powers and this girl who, you know, has these abilities and this guy who's been driven mad and, his wife and all, et cetera, et cetera. And then it mm. kind of becomes, she escapes and then the movie ends. And I yeah. don't, you know, um, I know you kind of, we were going to do this a little while ago and then you wanted to watch it again. And I'm, I'm curious, like, is there something I'm missing? Like, is there, you know, is that kind of it? I know that there might be some symbolism that the director is trying to play with. And, mm. um, there, there might be, you know, it's sort of like one of those things where, yeah, it, it looks great. It's gorgeous. Um, I really liked the aesthetic of the film. Um, mm-hmm. The slowness and the pacing didn't bother me at all, um, really. I found myself involved in it, but I kind of felt myself, like, at the end, like, why did I sit through that? You know, like... Yeah. Um, um, it, anyway, it does, sorry, go ahead. On, on the, well, on the surface, it, it does... Uh, for when I, when I first watched it, um, I, I got to the ending, and it, was like, it felt like a cheat to me. It was like, okay, I've been... They've been building up so long for something that's supposed to be exceptional. At least you think it's supposed to be exceptional. And then it seems like they cheat at the end and just sort of end uh, the film. Um, but I think that was probably the director's... I, I get the impression that was his his personal choice to go against convention. 
Like, instead of seeing the big psychic battle like you see at the end of Dark City, uh, you see the direct opposite to go against the viewer's expectations. I think the point was that uh, in the Institute itself, Barry Nile, who, you know, he's he's on edge, of course. He's trying to control his own life through the use of drugs, uh, through this facade he puts on. Um, and he's, of course, controlling uh, Elena. He's trying to, he's essentially controlling all of his environment. And he is essentially, you know, uh, God where, where he's sitting at that point. But I think the point of the film was that um, as soon as uh, Elena was able to escape that environment, uh, it, it just shows you what a damaged and weak and impotent person Barry Nile actually was because as soon as uh, Elena escapes um, he's no match for her at all like there there is no there, there's no question there that uh, that all this time he he was nothing and she was so much more at the end um, so I didn't have as big a problem with the ending just sort of uh ending you know yeah I, I don't even think that's i mean i'm fine with that i guess what i wanted to see was well okay then what happens when you know elena finds the uh settlement you know the the neighborhood mm. and you see her kind of walking towards a house like then what happens you know yeah. what i mean like um how does this fit into a larger world you know what is the actual story behind elena what's the story behind this arborea institute uh you know how is this viewed by the rest of the world? Uh, what you know, it's it's just sort of like uh, I mean, I get that the story that they were telling was this story about this guy who exerts total control, goes crazy, lets her go for his own reasons, uh, goes to track her down, and then you know is is killed by her. I get that that's the story. It's just sort of like because I felt like the beginning of the film was really trying to expose us to some ideas and some themes and mm -hmm. some, uh, you know, I I thought there was some thematic resonance that we were trying to get here, and then it just kind of becomes, ah, and then he just you know, he bashes his head on the rock, and it's over. You know, yeah. <laughs> like, um, and then, you know, it's, it's sort of a, yay, happily ever after, I guess. But, like, um, you know, and I don't even think you end with a, uh, you know, like a moment of... Uh, you know, like dread or threat from Elena, like being this malevolent force in the world or anything, you know, it's not even like, Oh my God, what did we let loose or, or anything like that? It's a, it's just, yeah, you know, she's, she's walking to a neighborhood, you know? Um, I, I just wanted like, even just another like 10 minutes of movie, just kind of like, you know, yeah. Who does she yeah. run into? You know, just, just something to kind of give us some context. Uh, on that note, did you uh, stay through the end credits on this? Yes, it did. Yeah, the the, the end uh, the, scene with the, the psychonaut thing. Sentonaut, yeah. Um, Sentonaut yeah. or whatever, yeah. Uh, yeah. What's your interpretation of that? Um, or okay, well, we should, should describe it first, maybe. <laughs> yeah, well, uh, just just a quick description for anyone who actually wants to sit through this film. Um, uh, Which it is a good film. I'm not uh, like I feel like I'm being maybe too too hostile towards it. Um, I would recommend anybody interested see this. It. Um, it it um the sentinel is um essentially inside the institute we discover that um it's not of course another aspect of this film that's not totally explained it's just 
put there for you to interpret of maybe and decide for yourself what's going on. But there's these uh, suited, apparently artificial humanoids inside this institute. Now it's not quite spelled out whether whether they're uh, aliens or whether they're actually artificially created uh, uh, humanoids, I guess. But uh, I, I interpreted it as artificial uh, people, uh, probably that were going to be designed to be like maybe even the workers or something in this new utopian society they were developing. Um, so you see at the end, there is a Sentinot doll by a TV set. Uh, if you stay to the end credits and it seems like it might be, and it seems like maybe there's a dialogue from a TV show, maybe about Sentinots. Um, at first, I was kind of thinking that maybe they were going for the idea that this was all in Elena's head and she maybe fell asleep in front of the TV watching a show about Sentinots or something like that. But I think maybe it's not... And also, I had another idea, but uh, after watching it a couple times, that got debunked as well because I thought at first that maybe she didn't escape the dome. She maybe just escaped into a bigger dome where there actually was this utopian society sitting there. Of course, uh, everyone's gone, pretty much. But um, it seemed like maybe this would, this would be a toy that in that society that the people would probably give to their kids to make them comfortable with these freakish, baby-faced uh, mutants walking around the town, you know? Um, that, that's, actually a, that's actually a clever idea. I, I, I kind of like that. Um... But yeah. I mean, but uh, if if it was if it was actually true that uh, uh, she was still inside the dome, then uh, it would be totally contradicted by the the scene with the two heavy metal guys that Barry Nile runs into, of course. But <laughs> what are they called? Heshers, I think. Heshers, yeah. yeah nice. Yeah. I, I felt very Canadian, you know, just now saying. Yeah. Hesher, yeah. <laughs> um. No, I I kind of. Uh... I, I like that idea. I kind of interpreted it, you know, just kind of my immediate thought was, you know, it's like, oh, look, it's like a kid was playing with these toys and like all this was just the story that happened in this kid's imagination while he was, you know, watching well, TV or something, you know. Yeah, there, um, there, I think there's some credence to that because um, the director, uh, Panos Cosmatos, uh, basically said that the the general idea for this film came from his childhood going to uh, video stores. Um, for some of you kids out there, you used to be able to <laughs> actually rent movies on VHS tapes. You, you used to go into buildings that had yeah. cassette tapes and they each had like little covers on them. And then you'd look at them and think that looks like a cool movie. And then most of the time you'd actually rent it. Which is where you'd pay money and then they would give you the tape, and you got to keep it for a few days. Yeah, and you'd, you'd usually you'd probably be disappointed by it because the cover yeah. was usually much better. But um, basically, he said when he was a kid, he used to walk around in the video store and he used to look at all these cool covers for these movies, and he used to imagine himself what the story was about. And I think maybe you, since it's at the end of the credits, you don't necessarily have to connect it with the actual story to the film, I think it might actually just be a little, a little <clears throat> nod, a little nod to, um, his own childhood and, and making up stories and stuff with, with the stuff around him. you know, it, it might be something as simple as that. I don't know, but, 
I mean, it's clear. I mean, again, it's clear. It's clear that the director um, has talent. Mm-hmm. I would love. I mean, uh, I, I'm going to uh, kind of what Roger Ebert said about Quentin Tarantino after seeing Reservoir Dogs, is mm-hmm. you know this is the you know this is a movie just good enough to make me want to see this director make a better movie. Yeah. <laughs> you know, um, I'm paraphrasing a bit there, but um, I really want to see. Uh, just a better script. Just, you know, I want to see some execution on these ideas instead of just, you know, okay. And then that's, that's, that's the end, you know? Yeah. Um, and I think that that's kind of my, my thing is like, I like it. I think, uh, again, kind of going to Roger Ebert, uh, there's this, uh, theory that the cinema exists to provide these kind of arresting visual images. Mm -hmm. I mean, there's a lot of that in this. Oh Um, yeah. You know, this is, this is kind of a, a very uh, profound film visually. I mean, there's just so much. I mean, it's this sumptuous feast visually. Yeah. But there's just, you know, to my mind, there's nothing behind it. Um, this is the this is the kind of film that I, I wish the slash film cast had done a review of this because they would have had hours worth of conversations about <laughs> different interpretations about this uh, about this kind of movie. They they did that kind of stuff all the time. Um, I yeah. don't think they reviewed this one, but I would have liked to have uh, seen what they had to say about it. Um, yeah, know, different theories that they would have. Yeah, I don't disagree. I think I think the the biggest strengths of this film, of course, are the visuals and the soundtrack and things of that nature. Like it, the story, it it builds up very well. It starts out very well. It's very intriguing, but it is it is a weak payoff, even if it was intentionally supposed to be going against the viewers' conventions because. Um, Compare this to, say, uh, No Country for Old Men, which also sort of does the same thing in a way, where it it's essentially throws the formula out the window by the end, and um, and you actually shift focus from who you thought the main character was. and uh, But that film has a lot more going on behind the scenes and a better written story, and I'll, I'll definitely agree with that. I'm not... I'm not I, 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 yeah, I, I, comparing this to a Cormac McCarthy, uh, you know, adaptation, <laughs> you know, um, yeah, yeah. The, Cormac McCarthy has a slightly better writing sense. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. <laughs> Please. <laughs> but, uh, um, yeah, uh, and I mean, I, I think I'm a bit more positive on this film than you are, but uh, I I do have a, a lot of the same problems with it. It's, it, it, it probably just didn't bother me as much because i was so floored by the visuals and in the actual uh score for the for the film i think uh, i am i think i think you and i agree more than you think we do I, I i i did enjoy this film i i would watch it again um honestly it, mm-hmm. uh i think that there is more to plumb than i have maybe given it credit for and now that i'm talking about it i'm like you know, maybe you, maybe there is a, a, you know kind of more of a, a thematic resonance to some of it once you kind of go through it again. Um, I just I just wish maybe it was a little more explicit, and I'm not sure that kind of I read a little bit you know like the Wikipedia mm-hmm. page for this film you know, um, and a couple other things, and I don't know that anything that the filmmaker has said about it makes me think that there's some deep meaning that I just missed. I think that it's just this is the film that he made, and yeah, you know. Uh, like, uh, like- I appreciate the film. I'm just, you know, I'm just trying to kind of clarify what it is and what it isn't. <laughs> yeah, know? like I like I said, it, it does. It feels like a, a film student was given a, a million dollars to make his first film. It, it, it is what it feels like because it, it, there there seems to be like an immaturity there as far as uh, putting a 
coherent story together. But as far as, you know, throwing in every visual thing that this person obviously loves from films he's, he's watched growing up. I mean, he's got that in spades. Uh, the film looks like a Kubrickian film. Uh, it's lit like a Kubrickian film and like a John Carpenter film. Yep. Um, uh, a little you bit of Brian De Palma there. Yeah. Um, you could definitely see connections to like THX 1138. Um, when you go into the uh, sort of flashback stuff with the, in the transcendence, you could connect that to films like uh, Altered States um, and some other films of that of sort of that era. Uh, so I mean, it feels like in like an art film made in 1983. Yeah, in a way, like it, you could almost believe this fits in between, uh, you know, The Shining and Full Metal Jacket in Kubrick's filmography. Like, yeah. like it's not. It's not quite that Kubrickian, um, but it wouldn't be hard to believe that like some of the same people worked on all three films or something. It, like it, it doesn't feel like a film made in 2010, you know, set mm-hmm. in 1983. It almost feels like a film made in 1983. Yeah, and um, that, it's got a little bit of technology that you wouldn't have back then. But I mean, it, it's not 100 percent there, but it it very much feels like this is an art film made in 1983. Yeah, and I, and I believe that was I, I believe he said uh, the director said that was sort of what he's going for is like maybe a, like a lost movie from 1983, and that makes me think of um, a similar film uh, by uh, the director Ty West who did uh, House of the Devil, um, which itself is a throwback to those uh, weird horror movies you'd find on the big box VHS cassettes back in the day that looked really interesting, but maybe the movie itself didn't quite live up to the artwork on the, on the case. Um, as far as a recreation of like a obscure lost 1980s film, I mean, I think he's perfected it in spades, even with like the soundtrack sounds like, uh, something John Carpenter was, paid to do on the side while he was making Halloween right. 2 or something, you know? <laughs> but, yeah. Um, but yeah, um, I don't think I have much more to say about it. I, I, I is it for, even though I do, uh, sort of play it up a bit, um, I, it's just sort of like a bare recommendation for me in, in a lot of ways. It's just like, it's, it's one you might want to see if you really appreciate like film vis- visuals and style. So yeah, if we were gonna do a star system, I don't like doing like star systems and ratings and stuff. But you know, kind of like four stars, out of four stars, you know, this is kind of one of those two and a half stars mm-hmm. um, where it's kind of that right on the borderline of thumbs up, thumbs down. Um, you know, uh, if if what we've said sounds interesting to you, yeah, uh, if you're uh, interested in kind of seeing these these sumptuous visuals, then uh, definitely. Uh, it's worth checking out. Um, certainly, if you've got a Netflix subscription, it's not going to cost you anything to see it. Yeah. Um, so uh, check it out. But um, you know, just kind of be aware that there's not a lot of uh, uh, follow through <laughs> on the uh, on the story there. But uh, yeah. other than that, I mean, it's 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 probably worth seeing if you're interested in it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so uh, we'll just. Uh... Go right to uh, plug your stuff, Daniel. Where, where can people find you? Sure. Um, you can find me, uh, probably the best way to find me if you want to search me out is to find me on Twitter. I'm Daniel E. Harper. Uh, I have a podcast that I do with my wife, another podcast, um, which is all about Doctor Who. 
uh, because I'm that kind of nerd. Um, so you can <laughs> check me out there. Um, it's uh, Oi Spaceman. That's oispaceman.libsyn, L-I-B-S-Y-N dot com. Um, and uh, so if you do want to listen to me talk more about um, you know slow-moving things that don't always have a, a proper ending, you can uh, listen to me talk about Doctor Who there. That would probably be the best uh, thing to do. Mm-hmm. And, uh, of course, uh, you're, if you're not listening at, to this podcast from Podbean, you can find us at Podbean um, at uh, the, the abbreviated They Must Be Destroyed at, on site uh, dot podbean dot com, I believe it is. Um, I'll, I'll link it. Uh, if, you, if, you're, if you're on the uh, YouTube video, I'll just link it down there anyway. And you can find all of our links there as well as some other interesting podcasts. Um, and uh, if you have any uh, hate mail, uh, you know, anything like that, or if you want to praise us, um, you can send uh, all questions and comments. Uh, actually, you can do it on Podbean. You can send an uh, email directly to me at hoaglyreviews at gmail.com. Or you can leave comments under the YouTube video, depending on where you're looking at this. So uh, we, we definitely love feedback, and we'd encourage anything, even if it's negative feedback. So, Especially if it's negative, because then we'll read it and laugh about it on the air. Yeah, we'll tell you all how stupid your opinions are. <laughs> okay, so um, I think we'll uh, I'll pick the music for this episode, what we're going to go out on, and I, I think it's pretty obvious. I'm, gonna, I'm just going to pick something from the actual soundtrack to this film by uh, a group called uh, Sonoya Caves, and they do this very, really great soundtrack. I, I really, really love it. It's actually on my MP3 player right now as something I listen to while I'm at work. So um, until then, uh, we're going to take off. Uh, thank you, Daniel. Thanks for having me once again, Lee. Yeah, and uh, thank you guys for listening. Bye-bye. Bye.